As we discussed what book to start with, I think we all agree we landed on Titus because we see as a church plant, we see this as Paul's instructions to Titus who was planting a church in uh, Crete. So we thought it was as good a place as any to start because it's how we want to be founded. We want to be founded on biblical instruction and we want this church to um, govern itself under the authority of Scripture because that's God's ordained means for us to, to govern ourselves. So having said all that, um, I'd like to pray for us and then we'll get into our text today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the privilege it is to have your word, Father. I thank you that... In my entire life, not for one day, have I had to search to find access to your word. The reality is there's so many that are, Lord, that don't have it, don't have it at their fingertips, don't have it in their pocket at all times as they walk around, Lord. We are so overwhelmingly blessed with your word. And I confess first and foremost, Lord, I take it for granted every single day. I thank you that even because of that and even in spite of that, you graciously continue to provide it to us. And I pray that you help us to glean from it truth today. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and let not one word of folly or error be spoken from my lips, Lord. Let nothing be said for my own purposes or pride, Lord, but let Christ be lifted up, God. Let all that's said be consistent and obedient to your word. And may it be, Lord, for the building up of your people that we may look more like you that we may shine brightly and our lights would shine forth unto others that they may see good works in us and give you glory, God. There are works that you've prepared beforehand for us. Carry them out in us and that for your glory. Help us. Bless this time now. Thank you for it. Forgive us of our sins and keep us from sin, please. In Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen. If you would please mind standing with me just for the reading of our text. Our focus text this morning is going to be Titus chapter 1, verse 5. But just for the sake of context, I'm going to read verse 1 all the way through verse 9. Um, so I'll start here. Paul In verse 1, it says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thank you. So as we look at our text this morning, our focus verse is going to be chapter 1, verse 5. Um, as Phil uh, concluded the greeting last week, we're starting here into really the point and, and the things that Paul sees fit and sees important enough to address in this letter to, uh, young, uh, to Titus. So, the first thing that we're going to see in verse 5 here is Paul giving Titus an explanation or possibly a reminder of the reason or the purpose that he had for leaving him there or 
instructing him to remain in Crete. We see from other scriptural examples, other letters where he's referenced, and I believe even in Acts where we see Titus traveling with Paul. So this isn't, we have to first real quickly identify Paul didn't meet Titus in Crete and say, okay, you stay here, this is home base for you. This is someone that Paul had had with him in other areas of ministry and service, and he had seen a designated and designated um, a reason, or there was importance for Paul enough to see. He told Titus, you stay put in Crete. I need you there now. There's a need here. I need you there to attend to it. So I think what we have to first engage with this morning is, what is this? What is this reason? Why is it important? Why was it important enough for Paul to tell him, you stay in Crete? You stay there. Did he leave him there just arbitrarily? Did he leave him there unclear as to what his purpose was? Of course not. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So just by way of observation, I also want to point out this must have been very clearly important to Paul because he clearly, it's, it's not a stretch to see, A, that he personally cares for Titus. Just in its own greeting that, that Phil preached on last week, how does he refer to Titus? It's not just a, some a strange guy that he's spent some time with. What does he call him in verse 4? My true child. How would we feel leaving a child behind in an area that we're not going to get to see them? And this was not obviously, to state the obvious, it was not a time of technology where he could interact with him, where he could FaceTime him, where he could see him whenever he wanted to. This was somebody that he had left personally back because he saw that the loneliness that that would potentially create in his own heart was worth the objective that Paul was there to accomplish. Why is that? He also, it's clear that he misses him to some degree. Same letter, if we look in chapter 3 at the very end, uh, at the end, chapter 3, verse 12, he's instructing him. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Again, this very simply just pointing to the fact Paul misses the guy. I mean, this, this is somebody he's done ministry with. He's, he's suffered with. We all see how many things Paul has suffered during his ministry. And I, I think we all agree we don't want to admit this because we wouldn't wish this on the people we care about. But misery does love company. If we're struggling with something, doesn't it help? Am I the only one that it helps if you got somebody that's just willing to struggle through it with you? This is somebody that Paul has struggled with, that they've worked together with, and Paul is now leaving him in this town of Crete to do something, and it must be something important. We obviously see that it's important because Paul says the the words that he uses after this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. First, we need to look at the words that Paul chose to write this. Why? Words matter. We've said that so many times, we'll continue to say it. Words matter. In the ESV, the verbiage says, what remained into order. The NASB is very close. It says, to set in order what remains. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what does the wording actually mean? Did the translators of whatever version of the Bible you're holding, did they get it right? Is this a fair, interp- uh, is this a fair translated uh, interpretation of what the original Greek said? The Greek f- for, the wor- for the phrase, set in order, it was one word for that phrase, to set in order. And I am not going to pronounce this right. I'm just going to give you, just for reference sake, it's epiteodortho. And it is, by literal definition in the Greek, to proceed in correcting or setting in order. And the word, I read a little bit about it, and each one of them 
went back to, it could even stand on itself to correct something, to correct or to put something in order. Now, again, just really trying to focus on the word, you don't put something in order that is already in order. You put something in order that's out of order. You don't go into your, your, your book shelf and say, man, everything is just perfectly arranged. It's all alphabetical. I've got to redo all this. Of course not. You put stuff into order that's out of order, that's not as it should be. So Paul is saying, I left you in Crete for you to put what remained into order. And what is that? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So here's the first question that I have for us this morning. Is it biblically safe for us to conclude that Paul saw the absence of this task, of this appointing of elders in every town? And, and the translators get it right, the commentators, the translators universally agree that these words were very, very specifically translated from the original text. Elders is is always plural in this translation, and town is always singular. So there are elders being set up by Paul's instruction for every town, every church, every one local gathering. So is it biblically safe for us to conclude that Paul saw the absence of this or the lack of this as evidence that the establishment or the ordering of that local church gathering was not yet complete? Is that a fair biblical interpretation or assumption for us to draw from our text? Paul says, This is why I left you, young Titus, in Crete, you who I miss, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the first thing that I think is the safest thing as we answer, attempt to answer this question is, what did Paul not say? Let's just go ahead and look at what he didn't say because he could have given Paul, Titus any instruction here that he saw best, that he saw wisest, that he saw most practically helpful. What he did not say to him was, this is why I left you in Crete. Run the church. Conduct the affairs. Make the decisions you best see fit. Get some men around you that will help you do the things you need or that you see fit. But you run it as you see fit. And again, I, I don't say any of that to be um, just inflammatory or, or anything, but simply we need to look at, A, what the text doesn't say first. He's not telling Titus. And this is a, tr this is a man that Paul trusted enough to sit him up, to leave him there to do a very weighty task. As, as we will go through the book of Titus, there's a lot of issues here in Crete that he's entrusted Titus to address. But what did he not tell Titus? Man, get this in order. You can do it by yourself. You know, stand up. He said, you need to appoint elders in this every town, every church gathering. You need elders. You need these men. And, and we'll go into this more in the coming weeks. I'm not going to do that for purposes of time this morning. But these biblically qualified men, you need multiple of them. This is a weighty task. It's a weighty task, and it's a task that's too important to be entrusted to any one sinful man. Saved? Yes. Biblically qualified? Yes. Sinful and still vulnerable? Absolutely. It's too weighty for one man, I would submit, and we're going to continue to look at that from the text. I think there is an inherent danger, a danger that we don't talk about enough in the pulpits today, in missing this text. If we're not doing this, would Paul write to us and say, you need to put what remains in order. 
Your church isn't in order. You need men, men plural, to mind the affairs of shepherding this flock. We're going to look at some verses as we go through this, but this this word um, of elder, you'll see it interchangeable with God's steward, with bishops, pastors, even shepherds. And I started thinking about shepherds because, as most of you all know, we, my daughter and, and wife, they, they raise sheep. And sheep are the, some of the most beautiful animals, and they are the dumbest animals. And I just thought... It, there were the shepherds were always there were more than one you had groups of shepherds tending to one flock because when you're dealing with something that is hellbent on hurting itself you need help keeping that all pinned up and corralled and safe and alive it's not to be trusted for one person because i would argue paul had one person that he could have told run the church in crete he had titus And he said, you need other men. Here's the qualifications. Get them in place. Get this church in order. So I think there is a danger. So we know what he did not say. So now let's look at what he did say. Let's look at this as as our example. First, Paul wrote this, and we could just build a case off of just this text to support this. But let's look at Paul's actual example that he set. If you have your Bibles this morning, flip over to Acts chapter 14 for me, please. Acts chapter 14. And we're going to look at three verses starting in verse 21. So in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21, Paul has just been stoned, and it says, when they had preached, starting in verse 21, follow along with me if you'd like, he says, Luke writing this, it says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconia and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now this is Paul as one of the they here the men setting these churches up, the men planting these churches. And again, I checked the translations, and it is universally agreed upon that in verse 23, the word was properly translated elders as as an intentionally plural translated word for elders or bishops. And the word to follow that in every church is a singular reference. So we see here multiple godly qualified men appointed in each individual church to conduct the affairs of the church. We're going to get into the responsibilities and what that actually looks like, but all we're referencing now from our, uh, our text is what this command is that Paul has given to young Titus. So we see that in all that Paul has going on, and, and again, if you, if you look just up above that, Paul was, had just been stoned. Paul is a busy guy in the New Testament. And with all that he has going on, with people after him, with people stoning him, with people accusing him, with his heart breaking over things that are going not the way as he hopes as they would, in all that he has going on, he sees this appointment of elders as something worth his time to stay there and get done, he himself. So he's not preaching Titus to do something that he didn't himself practice as he set these churches up. In every town, he was, war- he was concerned here with 
appointing elders for them in every single church. It was worth Paul's time. It was worth Paul's time, not only enough of his time to write Titus and instruct him to do it, but we see him living out this example himself as well in how he conducted his setting up of these churches as he ministered to them one by one. Looking continually at Paul's example, if you still are in Acts, flip over now just a couple of chapters from there. Go to Acts chapter 20. And this is a very, very important example for us to look at. In Acts chapter 20, looking at verse 17 specifically, I'm not going to read this entire speech that he gives because for the purposes of what we're looking at this morning, I want to look at, again, Paul's example. Paul's told Titus to do something. So it's always good to ask the Bible the hard questions. Is it possible Paul told Titus to do something he didn't really put a lot of effort in himself? Was he given Paul, was he given Titus do as I say, not as I do instructions? In verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, it says, Now from uh, Miletus, he, I'm sorry, he sent to Ephesus, he being Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them and then gave them this speech. Now, we can look very quickly, obviously, at again, just the same words here. He sent to one church in Ephesus, single church, the church of Ephesus, Paul sent and called the elders, plural, group of Biblically qualified, God-honoring men from the single church to come to him. But I don't want us to miss something here. The, commenta- the commentator said that you can, we, can, we can build from Scripture and from references and when we know books were written, that Paul had spent some three years collectively at the church of Ephesus. So he had spent a great deal of time there. This was a church plant of Paul's. The church at Ephesus was Paul's through the grace of the Holy Spirit and God's providence and God's grace and blessing, Paul had been actively involved in establishing and setting up this church. What do we see then as he's about to leave it and as he is addressing it for the last time? Paul helped to plant this church and spent some odd three years in and out of it. And what do we see? We see as he's about to give his farewell speech to them, he calls from the single church at Ephesus and calls for the plurality of elders to come and let him address them. And it's clear that if, if we read the whole speech, if you even wanted to, if the word was translated elders wrong there, you can read the context and see very clearly from his address that this is multiple, multiple, multiple men that he is addressing in this speech. Um, so again, I encourage you to test that, test that out and see if that holds true. But we see here Paul putting effort, putting blood, sweat, and tears of his own into getting this set up, this set into order in the churches that he was planting, in the churches that he was pouring himself into, and in the churches, as we see from his letters, that he cared so deeply for. You see how Paul wrote to these churches. He loved them. He was... One of the most encouraging, just for my own flesh, is where Paul's talking about in one of the letters where he's writing to the churches, he's, in, he's anxious over them. He's, he's, he's actually worried over them. You know, and, and we see Paul's human side there, him struggling. These are churches he cared for. And this was something universally he cared enough to do in the churches, was to appoint elders in each town that he was setting up churches in. Going back to our... Our, our scripture text today. So 
We see his example here. I believe we've seen it, it clearly laid out here by his own actions that he takes a, a lot of care in this. But what does he say now in verse 5? We've looked at what he didn't say. We've looked at what he did. Now, what did he say? And this is something I was telling Phil this morning. I've, I've read through Titus, like, like Phil said and Blake. We've, we've tried to go through this repeatedly over and over to, to dig into the book of Titus and get out from it what we can get out of it. And something that I saw this morning that I've never seen before as I was preparing and, and uh, trying to finish up. Let's look at what Paul says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. If we put a period right there, we still lose no weight from this argument. But there's not a period there. It says, as I directed you, as I directed you, and I thought, man, put what remained into order. He's referencing a past direction that he's already given to Titus. He's reminding Titus of something. And the word, as I directed you, stood out to me this morning. Again, you can laugh at me later. I'm going to attempt to tell you what the Greek word is for directed. It's diaseo, and it is, means to arrange thoroughly. The Greek literal translation says to institute prescribe, appoint, command, give, to set in order, or to ordain, to arrange something thoroughly. Words matter. Paul did not suggest to Titus, you know, if it gets tough for you, if it gets overwhelming, get some men to help you. Paul directed him to do this at some point prior to the letter he's writing, writing to him here. He says, as I've directed you, past tense. He's already directed him and now he's writing him a letter reminding him of this. You put this into order that I've already told you. Remember, this is important. Words matter. Paul did not suggest this to Titus. He didn't recommend this to Titus. He didn't say, this is a way you can do this. He said, you do this. This is the way the church is going to be governed. You put men into order place. You put what remains in order. You appoint elders in each church as I have directed or commanded or prescribed or instructed, but not suggested or recommended or given you freedom to decide between. You do this. It, it, it's clear too, even in this own letter, and I called Blake to ask him his opinion if, I, if he thought I was putting too much on this, but I thought we, we see Paul's commitment to taking how serious he takes this, even in this own letter, even in this one letter. In verse three, 12, chapter 3 of Titus, verse 12. So Paul, again, I've already used this verse once to say he missed Titus. He's wanting him to come see him, but he doesn't say, hey, listen, I miss you. Take a break and come see me. What does he say? He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best then to come see me. It was so important to Paul to have Titus there working to get these elders in place. He wasn't willing to let him take a break from it to come visit him until he had backup, until he had someone else there to continue working on putting what remained into order. Again, I offer that to you by way of speculation, so don't take... Study that out for yourselves um, because I don't want to reach too much, but I, I, I think it is safe to conclude we see Paul being faithful to his own instruction here uh, 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 
over and above his own preference to see Titus because he misses him. It's, man, I miss you. As soon as help gets there, come see me. I want to see you. But first, we got to get somebody there to help you keep building on this and keep doing this. This is too important for us to take a break from. He wanted Paul. He wanted Titus there, but he, not at the not at um, not enough to sacrifice what needed to be put in into order. This is important. And guys, the reason for the disclaimer this morning is, I, as I was preparing for this, I understand this is not currently, and I, I I promise, I don't say this to be in any way inflammatory or or, or even critical of any where else or anyone else, but unfortunately, this is not a common form of governance in the church today. It's, it, it's not. It's not the, I've, I've, I've been fortunate to grow up in church my entire life, and it is not a common form of church governance to see multiple equally qualified and equally equipped men serving in what's called a, a plurality of elders. Where these men are, they, they, they hold no, one holds one vote, one holds three votes. There's not a pyramid of elders, it's an equality of elders. It's an appointment of biblically qualified men to carry out their own giftings for the service of the flock and the glory of God. Nothing else. And it, it is sad to, 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 to state the fact that this is the exception these days and not the rule. It's the exception and not the rule. So I think we need to ask ourselves, is this, is this thinking, you know, where did this come from in Paul's mind? Is, this, is, this, is there wisdom in this? Is this supported elsewhere in Scripture? What else do we see? Where, we, we are to read Scripture in light of Scripture. Okay, We're supposed to interpret what's unclear through what's more clear. I believe this is clear in and of itself, but we always want to be safe. So let's look at a couple of other examples. Um, we see elders referred to. Even in the Old Testament. If you want to jot these scriptures down, I'm not going to read them to you because they're simply narrative references. I'm not, I, I want to be, be very, very clear. I'm not saying that the case for biblical eldership is built on any of the texts I'm about to give you. I'm simply referring you to the fact that this concept wasn't a New Testament concept. This was something that God in His providence and wisdom had set up in His national Israel Early, early on in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 4, 3, jot that down, you see multiple elders. In 1 Samuel 16, 4, you will see multiple elders in one congregation. 2 Kings 6, 32, you will see multiple elders, plural elders, functioning within one tribe or one body, governing one group. These are narrative references only, but let's consider the following. If you would, please flip to the book of Proverbs. We're going to read several verses quickly here. Flip over to the book of Proverbs. Because the question can be asked, you know, we've got so many wise, wise, wise men. The Lord is, is, has blessed us as a people in a time in history with wisdom, with access to information. So is there danger in entrusting this to one man? Let's look at some other just biblical wisdom. So 
Proverbs chapter 11 is the first one. And this is written by King Solomon, who I think we all know the story of Solomon. What was, what, what was what Solomon, and it's not rhetorical, what was Solomon known for? Wisdom. Wisdom. So this, he was known and argued to be the, one of the wisest, if not wisest man ever to live. Obviously, man not, not counting Christ. And these are Solomon's words. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Solomon's writing that. He did not say, but where there is a wise man, there is safety. He said, where there is an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Still Solomon, he says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. He did not say, but with one wise man, they succeed. With many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24, verses 5 and 6. A very good one here. A wise man is full of strength. And a man of knowledge enhances his might. So here we've got a single wise man. A wise man is full of strength. A man single, singular of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war. And in an abundance of counselors there is victory. Solomon, King Solomon, in his wisdom that God had poured out, the wisdom that Solomon asked God for and enjoyed because of God's grace to answer that prayer, saw the abundance of counsel as a good thing, as something that ensured success, as something that prevented and warded off folly. This was what Solomon saw as a good thing. This is arguably the wisest man to have walked the earth, and he saw wisdom in getting counsel from other men. What humility and wisdom in that for a wise man to say, I need wise counselors around me. Why in the world would we ever ignore God's graciously given wisdom? And I would submit for us for our consideration this morning, do we do this in other areas of our lives? I, I remember Vody talking um, at a conference one time, and he's talked about fathers' responsibility to disciple their children and disciple their families. He said, I see so many dads, they think their responsibility is to get their families to church and trust the leadership and the discipleship of the family to the experts, to the pastors. They have to be teaching that. That wisdom needs to be, we need to be digging into it for our own selves. And we, ought, we need to be searching Scripture and comparing it with itself and hearing it from more than one man. We need to be learning it from more than one man. If we go to the doctor and they give us a, 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 a serious diagnosis, it's a common thing to get a what? A second opinion. If a, if a trial goes to jury, they don't let one person decide it. It's 12 jurors. There's a, there is wisdom and multiple counsel. And we see it time after time exemplified in Scripture. If you would, please, I, I know I'm asking you to flip back and forth. Flip over to James now. Let's look at a couple of New Testament examples. In James chapter 5, verse 14. James writes, chapter 5, verse 14 of the book of James says, Is any among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, and let them, plural, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If we don't have multiple elders, if the churches are not filled, the church, the church isn't equipped with elders, plural, how do you obey this? This is a New Testament command. This is, not, this is not a narrative text. This is what we're told to do when we're sick. It is, a, it is a good thing if you're sick to call the church and say, guys, will y'all pray for us? Please, we're, we're tired of being sick. I texted Blake and Phil the other day. I said, will y'all pray for us? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be pitiful, but I'm tired of our house being sick. Will you pray for us? <laughs> you can't do this. If you have one pastor, you can't do what this says. Now, again, I'm not saying you don't call one person. I'm just citing as a biblical example in the New Testament church. It cannot be carried out as it was intended here if we're ignoring what Paul is telling Titus to do in Titus 1, chapter, five, or ch- chapter 1, verse 5. Last one I'm going to ask you to flip to. Flip just a couple of pages. Keep going that same direction. 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And this would be multiple sermons in and of itself, but I just want us to hear the, again, this theme, this coming from Peter. Peter says, So I exhort the elders, plural, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, flock singular, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, plural, to the flock singular. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The verbiage is repeated over and over and is consistent in this. Elders is referred in the, is referenced in the plural. Flock, church, town is referred to in the singular. Consistently, without exception that I can find. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply this text? If, this is, if we're interpreting this correctly, and guys, y'all, y'all hear us say this all the time, the Bible is here for each one of us. It, we're, we're, elders are not popes. You don't need elders to read your Bible, to have the Holy Spirit reveal truth from it to you. So test everything that you hear out of this pulpit, out of any sermon you listen to. You run it through. This is a filter You filter everything that you hear from this pulpit, from anyone, from any elder, from any pastor, from any friend, through the lens and filter of the Word of God and see what holds. I pray humbly and am scared to to misinterpret and to misspeak. I believe this is a fair and accurate understanding of what Paul is instructing. Titus, the church in Crete, and I would submit the churches today, how they are to be governed. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So how do we apply this? What does this mean for us today? Grace Bible Church, brothers and sisters in Christ here today, what does it mean? First and foremost, I would submit for consideration that we should never leave such weight to one man. 
I don't want any of you to be offended. There ain't a man in this room or on this earth I trust this much, including myself. First and foremost, myself. Phil's heard me say it. Blake's heard me say it. I don't trust myself with this kind of, not authority, but, but, but responsibility. I don't trust myself with this kind of responsibility. There's not a man I trust with this kind of responsibility if they're standing on an island by themselves. I would also submit it is a cruel thing to leave that kind of responsibility on any one man. And I think God instructed Titus to do what he did. And Paul did what he did in Ephesus and these other churches because he knew it was too much weight for one man. It was too much responsibility for one fallen man. Fallen, yes. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit, yes. But still fallible, still struggling, still, as Phil said, confessing his own sins. It's too much, guys. For us to put that kind of trust in a man, a man who at his own hearts are so deceitfully wicked that it took God Himself incarnate to step into His own creation and take on flesh and die for the sins of His children. It took the blood of Christ, it took the murder of Jesus Christ Him taking and drinking the cup of wrath. Him dying the death that each one of us deserve. Him being raised from the grave and ascended to heaven where He intercedes for His people. It took that to save man. That's how wicked our hearts are. We need the gospel. We absolutely need the gospel. And even though we are saved by the gospel, praise the Lord, and by God's grace, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have to watch ourselves. Watch ourselves. Examine ourselves. As Phil said, we've got to be looking inward at the sin in our own hearts. And we've got to be confessing it. Man is too vulnerable for this kind of responsibility to fall on any one man's shoulders. I want to be careful how I say this, but I always always want to... Any opportunity I have to stand behind a pulpit, I want to be transparent. I said this to Phil this morning. My concern is we see failings in the church, in our country, in our area where we live. We see these things. Is it possible that the church is failing because it's not being governed the way God instructed it to be governed? Any of y'all that know me, y'all, I, I try to be, I hope, never inappropriately open, but I, I struggle mightily as a man with lust. And I have to take safeguards and put things in place to make sure that I keep my eyes on the Lord and on my wife alone. If I ask the Lord, Lord, help me be faithful to my wife. Help me to be obedient to your word. And I then open my eyes and fill them with images that I don't need to look at and do everything other than fleeing sexual immorality and doing the things that God has told me to do. Is God going to honor my prayer for purity? No. I can't ask God, God, keep me pure while I do everything in my power to keep myself from being pure. It is a bold thing for us to say, ask the Lord for revival and to ask the Lord to do miracles in His church when we don't run the church the way God said to run His church. It's not our church. We didn't die for it. We didn't bleed for it. We didn't drink the cup of God's wrath for it. And we don't get to say how we set it up. What are we to do? We are to obey the Word of God. 
the Lord commands clearly how His church is to be arranged. I may be wrong, but I've read enough other men, godly men that I look up to, men, plural, Scripture, studied it, prayed over it, I've asked the Lord to show me where I'm in error on this. I believe this is how God says to run His church. It's our job to obey it. It's not our job to pick and choose from His instructions what we get to apply and what we get to deny. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to obey from His Word. And I am not going to be so provocative to point to some issues that it's really easy in evangelical churches to stand behind the pulpit and condemn. We can condemn things that the world's doing and we can condemn this and this, what this person's doing. And the church looks like the biggest hypocrite when we condemn things that we're fine condemning. We condemn things that we're uncomfortable with. But then when we see something like this and scratch our heads, what if it's, what if, and again, I, I want to say this so humbly and gently, what if I'm a, a sole pastor reading this and I don't have this in place? Do I have the luxury to skip over this? Do I need to say, oh my gosh, we need to put what remain into order and get some elders in here. We need to get godly men to help shoulder this responsibility and govern the church because God told me to do it this way. It is a rebellion and folly to pick and choose from God's Word what we submit to. The authority of the church, and Blake is preparing to talk about this more. The authority of the church also known as Christ's bride, God's people. The authority is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And in His Word, the church is to be put into order by appointing elders in every town as He has directed. These men are responsible for stewarding an elder as God's steward, as we will see and go into. For an, in verse 7, he says, for, over, uh, for an overseer as God's steward. These stewards are responsible for stewarding the household of God, managing the flock of God under the guidance and authority of the Scripture. The elders do not wield the authority. They are to administer the authority among themselves, among the flock, for our own good. Uh, forgive me, I don't know the reference, but the passage where it says, help me to obey your commands, and they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. God's commands are good for us. They're for our good. They're repellent to our flesh. They're not the way we want to live in our sinful desires, but they're for our good. I have a short video that I wanted to... Phil, can you play that for us? I want you to think about this, pastors. Think about this. There was a great king who loved his bride. Oh, he loved her. And he always dressed her in the simplest yet most elegant white linen. She needed no audacious colors on her face. She needed no wild hairdos. She was beautiful, simple, elegant, pure, godly, beautiful. And one day this king goes on a long journey and he calls you as a steward. He says, I'm going to entrust my bride to you. I'm going to be going. I've laid out for you in a book every rule I want you to maintain. 
I want nothing changed, nothing changed. Stuart, you be faithful to carry out this book. Well, the king goes, and he's been away a long, long time. And all of a sudden, the steward begins to realize that the people in the kingdom are, are no, they're losing interest in the king because they're losing interest in the bride. She's too simple, um, too prudish, rather boring. She's out of step with the times. And so this steward thinks in his mind, aha, I've got it figured out. He calls her in. He takes off her white, elegant, godly dress and dresses her in something far more attractive to carnal men. Paints her face and then parades her up and down the street and by doing so, draws all the carnal, wicked men back into fellowship, supposedly, with the king. That's exactly what countless pastors in America are doing today. They have taken the simplicity of the bride of Christ, her magnificent beauty, her purity, her holiness, and they have tore it from her and they dress her up and parade her in front of carnal men that they will be attracted to somehow come back to God. Let me tell you something. On the day of judgment, don't, don't worry about the atheist. Don't fear for the prostitute or the murderer. You want to fear for somebody on the day of judgment? You fear for a large number of evangelical pastors who have departed from the Word of God and are parading the church in a dress, a garb that God never intended her to wear. Many times I pray, Lord, increase your fear in me. Increase your fear in me. You should be afraid to touch my wife. Terribly afraid. Oh, but how much more afraid should you be to touch the bride of Christ and do anything with her that is not found in this book? As we close, I want to say that I know, Blake said this in the, um, in the Sunday School Hour this morning, the Lord reveals truth to us over time. We don't, we're not ever going to figure it all out on this side of heaven. Paul says, we see clear, I see now dimly as I see. One day we'll see clearly. We don't have it all figured out. I know there are godly, wonderful men that the Lord is using in power and might that are standing on islands by themselves. And I am not condemning any one of them. It's not my place. I'm not. I'm simply looking at what this text says as we try to attempt to set this church up, we want to put what remains into order. We want godly men here to lead this for the sake of the flock, for the protection of the men themselves, but most importantly, for the obedience of the direction we've been given in the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank You for Your Word. And I confess, Lord, I am completely insufficient to proclaim it. Father, I thank You for the privilege that You use, the folly of men, to show Your wisdom. 
I pray that you would restrain my pride always, Lord, and I pray that you would restrain folly from our hearts, from our minds. Lord, let us speak and say only what you would have spoken, Father. This is your church. This is your bride. Christ died for her. How dare we not protect her and govern her as you've commanded us. You are God. We are man. You are the master. We are the slaves. Let us obey you. For your commands are not burdensome. And I praise you for that, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for what you've done to save your bride. I thank you that you take enemies and make them your fellow heirs, Lord. I thank you that you adopt rebels and make them your sons and daughters because Christ is that amazing of a Savior. And I pray that the truth of the gospel of Christ would make obedience to your words seem like the very smallest, easiest, least we can offer you. By your Spirit, give us the grace to execute it. And your grace, forgive us for when we fail you so often, more often than we get it right. And in your glory and splendor, be glorified and be praised when by your grace and by the guidance of your Spirit, we do get it right. Let others see our good works and give you glory. I pray for every brother or sister here this morning. I praise you for them. I praise you for the chance to gather freely. And I thank you for your word, and I pray to be changed more by it. I pray that we would be your light in this earth. Forgive us of our sins. Keep us from sin this day. Be glorified in us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.